We all agree that education is important in 2023, but there's a lot of debates happening in education. So here to talk about the state of education from the so-called parental rights movement to the role of parents, but also how are schools doing and what is some advice for a new premier in Manitoba? So with me here today to talk about that is my friend, Michael Zagstra. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, Michael, uh, it's uh, great to see you. You're a senior fellow at Frontier, and you've uh, also written a lot in terms of both commentary publicly. And it's interesting, you've written some uh, great books, including uh, Sage on the Stage, as well as uh, doing a lot of research around education. And I'm also delighted that you are a teacher, nonetheless, in the school system, and you're coming in from Steinbach, Manitoba. So we're glad to have you. Um, you know, it's uh, it's been interesting. It's about a year ago that we had really, I think, a very thoughtful conversation about the so-called basics around education. Uh, we talked a lot about your profound insights based on both research and experience about what makes for good, successful education. And I did want to set the stage a little bit by asking you a really basic question, and that is why is education so important to all of us, even if we don't have any children in the education system? Well, education is important because this is how we ensure that people are prepared uh, to function adequately in the world around them. It's through an education, and whether that's at school, a public school, an independent school, or a home school, whatever form the education takes, this is where you learn the academic basics. This is where you learn how to do basic math. This is where you learn how to read and learn how to write. This is where you gain knowledge about the country that we live in. You learn about Canadian history, for example, uh, world history, the history of the world wars, uh, basic science and scientific concepts. These are things that you need to have in your brain in order to be able to function adequately in society. So whether you're at a workplace and you need to use some of those basic, basic math skills or whether you're... Uh, uh, looking at a weather report and trying to understand what uh, what the weather uh, forecast is telling you, or whether you're just in a conversation about the latest news report, uh, being well-educated means that you're able to function well and able to participate well in society. Well said. So if you can kind of summarize, and I know this is a big job because it involves a lot of background, but if you looked at across the country, how are our schools performing? How are they doing? Well, it's important to remember that we have 10 provinces and three territories and education is a provincial matter. So it is a separate uh, province by province. And yet there are some commonalities. The good news is that generally speaking, Canada as a whole does perform fairly well in international assessments. For example, the Program for International Student Assessment known as PISA, uh, Canada performs well above average. That is the good news. Uh, the bad news is that Canada's performance has been in decline for the last 20 years, more so in some provinces than in others. And so you have higher performing provinces such as Alberta, for example, although Alberta has declined as well. And you have provinces that uh, that are at the lower end, such as Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And uh, so, again, the good news is that we perform well uh, compared to most other countries, but uh, there has been some noticeable decline in some of those academic basics. And so... Uh, we can never afford to be complacent. We need to make sure that we are uh, making schools uh, as effective as possible. Indeed. And when we look at um, province to province, if we think of comparing, dare I say, apples to apples, do all provinces have standardized tests? Uh, no, uh, th th there is definitely a lot of variation on this. And so uh, in uh, Alberta, uh, would be the province that tends to have the most standardized testing because you have the grade 12 provincial exams plus uh, exams to the grades six and nine level, also grade three. Uh, Manitoba has uh, and Saskatchewan have the fewest. Uh, Manitoba right now has only the grade 12 exams, although they are looking at bringing in grade 10 exams as well, but that has not been implemented yet. Saskatchewan doesn't have any. 
And so, uh, and then Ontario, you have some specifically at the grades, uh, at the grades uh, six and nine levels, grade three as well. And so you've got, you've got a fair bit of variation across the country. And so it is definitely not all the same. And the problem is that when you don't have standardized testing, and particularly when you, or when you don't have much of it, it's very hard to know where students are at unless you're unless you're getting one of those international assessments such as PISA, which happens every three years, and then you get the news stories about oh my goodness we've declined, and uh, that's information that really you should have a whole lot sooner than that, and you're only going to get that if you have provincial standardized testing. So from the parents' point of view, and I know that you are both a parent and obviously an educator and a thinker about this. But as a parent, if you're walking through the hallways of a school, are there, dare I say, obvious signs that your school's doing a, a good job in terms of educating your child? Yeah, there's a, if, as a parent and frankly, as a teacher, there are a number of things that I would look for in terms of are things going well in the school. If you're walking down the hallways, I would, uh, I would first of all be looking around, uh, is it an orderly environment? And that doesn't mean it has to be absolutely silent. I mean, that's a myth that anyone thinks that education is completely silent, but um, is it orderly? Like are students in class when they're supposed to be? Um, are, if you do encounter students, are they generally respectful to adults? And again, you're going to have exceptions in every school and even the best schools, you're going to have some students that are disruptive, but is the general tone of the school one of respect? Uh, it, does it look like uh, if you were to walk into a classroom, is the teacher clearly in charge? doesn't mean the teacher is talking the whole time, but is it obvious that the teacher is in charge of the learning and is directing learning? And so those are some of the telltale signs that I would certainly look for if I were uh, in a new school looking to see uh, whether learning is truly happening. Yeah, no, that sounds like great advice. So, Michael, surely we'd look back at 2023. I know we're kind of almost near the cusp of shifting into 2024. But if you had to look back at 2023, I think we'd all agree that it's kind of remarkable the visible tide, if you will, of literally hundreds of thousands of parents um, coming out publicly saying, hey, we're concerned that we have a voice in education, the so-called parental rights movement. Uh, you've had uh, the so-called One Million March, uh, marches that are going on really across the country. So why, why has that risen up? Was that a surprise to you? Uh, yes and no. It was a surprise the degree to which it caught on in various provinces and just how many people were involved, because obviously there's a lot of organization involved in that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't surprising because the topic of parental rights has been in the news a lot lately, and that has galvanized uh, people on, on opposite sides of this issue. Uh, Premier Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick taking the position that he did uh, in terms of parents' rights to know about uh, things going on with their children. Uh, that seemed to be the, the trigger point uh, and, uh, and the fact that he chose not to back down and is, uh, is, uh, is standing firm. And then, of course, Scott Moe, Premier Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, implementing a similar policy uh, that has certainly helped keep the issue in the news. And so uh, I don't think that this would have gotten as much attraction, uh, as much attraction and as much attention uh, if it wasn't for those two premiers, and particularly Blaine Higgs, because uh, it's always tough being the first uh, politician to take a vocal stand on something that is potentially controversial, and uh, but he certainly got things going as far as getting uh, uh, getting parents and other members of the public talking about uh, about what's happening in school and what some of the policies are. So, can you remind us a little bit about what Premier Higgs did in in the province of New Brunswick? Well, basically, what Premier Higgs did was he implemented a change to something called Policy Seven Thirteen. Uh, and that had been a policy that uh, his government actually put in place originally in 2020. And uh, the part of it that's, uh, that attracted the debate was the, the, the requirement that if a, uh, uh, if a child is going to be recognized in school in an official capacity uh, with new pronouns, a new gender identity, and that sort of thing, uh, then prior to that happening, parents need to be informed. And uh, because the previous policy had been that parents would only be informed if the child gave consent. And as Premier Higgs pointed out, uh, that could lead to situations where you could have very young children adopting a completely new identity at school and parents being completely in the dark. And that, of course, creates all sorts of all sorts of problems. And so the policy specifically states that any child under the age of 16 uh, needs to, uh, 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 you, the school has to notify parents if they're going to use 
uh, a different gender identity, different pronouns um, for that child. I should add the policy also does have the stipulation that if there are concerns uh, about how parents might react and if the child has genuine concerns about safety, uh, then the, uh, the child is referred to uh, um, uh, an expert within the school system, for example, a child psychologist uh -huh. that will work with the child and with the school to come up with a, a plan by which to properly notify home. So uh, okay. the policy does have the safeguard in there that if there are safety concerns, and again, that's the small minority uh, where, where there'd be those types of concerns. The vast majority of parents are loving and care about their kids and, uh, and, and, and obviously want what's best for them. But in those in those cases where there's a question mark about how parents would react and the child has that concern, uh, there is that stipulation. So with that stipulation in place, the policy clearly says that parents do need to be informed about that sort of thing. Exactly. So it seemed like they were trying to, dare I say, it, it seemed like they were trying to walk the line of common sense where parents want to know what's going on with their their child. Obviously, they love love them and care for them and and perhaps there's the exception where there's uh, some type of, of um, bad relationship between the parents and the child. But even then, they were trying to anticipate that kind of scenario as well. Yeah, it's it's very much it's a balanced approach. And even even when you look at the age that they picked, I mean, they didn't pick the age 18. They picked the age 16 because it's recognized mm -hmm. that once you're above the age of 16, you are becoming quite autonomous, not fully autonomous, but certainly moving in that direction. And so above mm -hmm. the age of 16, you don't need parental consent uh, or even mm -hmm. parents to be informed. Uh, and also allowing for the uh, uh, what to do, again, if there's concerns about how parents would react and referring the child to an expert within the system. And so a lot of safeguards in place and, uh, uh, and, and a lot of commentators, when you sort of get past the initial reaction, a strong reaction on both sides, you look past that. A lot of commentators recognize that, you know, this is actually a pretty balanced approach that uh, that Premier mm -hmm. Higgs was trying to take. Yeah. I, I, I'm wondering also, Michael, that as parents hear about these issues, then they start looking perhaps more incisively at what they see in the classroom. And I want to give you a, a, um, a quick story. I have a, a friend of mine, his name is Matt, and, and he was going through his um, uh, children's um, high school in grade nine, I think it was. And what he thought was in the high, in the in the school was quite revealing like there were an awful lot of things up in the walls related to all kinds of things and nothing against the the gay pride um, flag per se but the classroom had uh, many many uh, of those flags among many other things there was really nothing about Canadian history let alone uh, I think there was one Canadian flag it was almost like the world had been uh, put upside down in terms of symbolism. And not to sound simplistic, I know that the teachers, you don't want to generalize too much, but but thoughtfully, um, those parents that I've heard back from that have looked at their child's classroom have said, whoa, wait a sec, what's going on here? It seems like the emphasis is no, not so much on the subject matter, but more on becoming dare I say, social activists or, or social justice warriors. I know I'm throwing these terms out, but it, it seems like wouldn't that create a lot of concern for most parents? And is that adding to the kind of angst that you have among parents saying, hey, what's going on in my school? I'm not sure if I know what is. Well, it certainly does raise those kinds of questions. And I've always believed that as a teacher, my role is to educate and to expose students to different ideas but at the same time, we're not supposed to push our personal views on students. I believe that very strongly. I'm, and I have students that will often uh, have asked me, you know, what's my what's my personal view on any number of issues? You know, because I teach history and we cover politics yeah. and all of that. And my answer to students always is, is that I, I'm not going to tell you what my personal opinion is, because my job here is to help you develop your opinion and to find out where you stand on it. I get plenty of other avenues in my life such as this interview with you right now, to give my opinion. So I don't mm -hmm. need to do that in the classroom context. And so uh, I really think that teachers need to be careful uh, not to be pushing their personal view. Even if you hold something really strongly, it's important to recognize you're going to have students that have a variety of political views, religious views, cultural backgrounds. And when the parents get the impression that you're pushing uh, a particular, you know, you're pushing a particular perspective, and that you're making students uncomfortable uh, because of the fact that there, it seems very one-sided, uh, that's problematic. And uh, 
I, I really do think that teachers need to be as neutral as possible uh, when in the classroom because it's it's an important role that we play. And uh, I my role is not to get students to all think like me. Uh, my my job is to help is to help get them to think. And it really shouldn't matter whether they agree with me or not. Yeah, well, and I I think that's well said, Michael. And I do recall um, last year in our discussion you talked eloquently about the need for critical thinking. Like that's one of the things that education is conveying on people. And I, I thought you had a brilliant answer. And part of that was, well, what, what does critical thinking mean in your book as you teach uh, people to think better? Well, critical thinking means that you are able to take the information that is available and come to an informed opinion about it. And so you need to have knowledge in order to think critically. You, you ignorant people don't think critically ever. Um, so just give you a simple example here. If it's uh, um, if you're hearing, you know, two people arguing about Sir Johnny McDonald and, you know, should schools be named after him or should mm -hmm. roads be named after him? Uh, if you've never heard of him before, uh, you've got nothing to say. You really shouldn't say anything. If you never if you don't know anything about him and his background, then how can you possibly have an informed opinion? It doesn't matter how many skills you have. It doesn't matter how many worksheets you filled out in critical thinking. If you don't have background knowledge in your head, Prior to the discussion, you won't be able to provide any insight. So critical thinking means you know a lot about the topic and you're able to come to an informed opinion about it. And that's it's you, you can't think critically about things you know nothing about ever. Exactly. And I, I think part of your answer was also that critical thinking involves the ability to debate and understanding, understand both sides of, the, of, of an issue. And uh, I think that's a really brilliant way to be educated. And we need that, not just among children, but among people of all age groups, including parents. So I thought that was well said. Well, absolutely. I'll just, I'll just add in the uh, uh, one thing that I often do with students is uh, when we're discussing an issue is that I'll get them to take a stand where I'll say, if you think this way, go to this side of the room. If you go to that, this way, think of, go to this side. If you change your mind at any point, go ahead and switch sides. And then I ask challenging questions to both sides and I push them really hard. And students know that I do this equally hard uh, to whatever side it is. And the, the, the idea here is you have to be able to defend your, your, your view. And yes, you have to be able to, if you, to know a about a topic and to be able to think critically, you have to be able to explain not only your position, but the opposite position and to do so in a way that's, that's convincing. If you can't do that, then you really aren't a critical thinker. Excellent. Yeah. And, and, Bravo for the need to have more debating clubs in our high schools and schools. Um, I think it's just uh, so important as a learning opportunity. So when it comes to the parental rights movement, there were a number of um, uh, public demonstrations right across the country. I attended um, a, a more local demonstration and it was amazing. And I did want to share that clip with you with a little bit of a conversation I had with uh, some of the parents, including these. Uh, we think our kids are minor, they don't understand. So leave our kids alone till age of 18. After 18, they able to understand they, what they want in their life. Till 18, they're minors, respect like parents' decision as well as their, till when, if they wanna take the decision after 18 year age, we will respect their decision as well. So that's a, a short clip from a, a discussion I had. I, I think I talked with, um, well over a dozen parents and, and it was interesting. I didn't know quite, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but what I was amazed by is there were some 2000 um, uh, persons participating, uh, people from different ages, I think mostly parents, that was my impression. But what struck me is how thoughtful uh, these persons were. They're always very um, qualified in their response by saying, you know, we have nothing against people that may be confused about their gender or, or um, their, their sexuality, but these are our children. And when it comes to our children, we reserve the right, or they didn't use this word that often, but they alluded to the boundary. We, we should be in charge of our, our kids when it comes to these areas. And we want to work with educators, but I, I don't know. I, I thought it was a very interesting discussion when I could meet all these parents were uh, just wonderful people. And yet you've heard also on the other side of the public debate, a lot of concern about, hey, wanting to um, uh, be uh, careful about how we respect people who may be confused about their agenda. Um, 
And but we've also heard some other type of rhetoric. And I think you've written thoughtfully about this, um, Michael, and that is almost like an anti-parent rhetoric. Um, and I know that some columnists have even called this whole thing about parental concern about their rights as being like a dog whistle. How do you read this? I know you've written some really thoughtful commentary on this, but how help us understand thoughtfully about what's going on. Are we talking past each other in a in a in a strange conversation? How can we better understand each other? Well, uh, to start, the the epithets, you know, the the harsh attacks need to stop. And so, uh, yeah. calling parents who are concerned about what's happening in school with their kids, uh, calling them hateful and bigots. Uh, you're mm -hmm. not going to have a conversation of any intelligence with someone who's calling you that. Right on. I mean, that's that's just for starters. Uh, and secondly, uh, it's important that we uh, uh, that we have a proper understanding of roles. And parents have a role, teachers have a role, and they're both very important roles. But uh, we make sure that we don't uh, assume that one role is gets subsumed by the other. And so. Teachers at school, in a sense, are acting in place of the parent in loco parentis, but it doesn't mean they replace the parent. Uh, it means that while they're at school, uh, they are under the authority of the school, but the school has to work with parents and inform them about, uh, about what's happening with children. That's the, that's the, under, that's the default. Um, when you have public schools in a neighborhood, that public school is a reflection of that neighborhood. It serves the neighborhood. Uh, when a neighborhood loses trust in the local school, uh, you you undermine education. And frankly, one of the fastest ways to destroy public education would be to send the message that uh, that parents um, don't have a right to know what's going on with their own kids. Because yeah. a whole bunch of parents will then vote with their feet and either homeschool their kids or put their kids in independent schools, which they have every, every right to do. And uh, again, I, I'm a strong believer in choice. I think parents should be able to choose uh, what education to provide. But obviously, Pub, the public school system is there. It's available. It's uh, and but if you if you make it a place where parents don't feel welcome, where parents can't ask questions, and where parents don't get information, uh, well, then you're going to have a lot less support for for the public school. And uh, you need to have a strong relationship and a strong connection, and, and that won't happen if parents are kept in the dark. Exactly. I think that's really good advice, Michael. And I like that you're um, you know you're really challenging us to think that we should be working together as a team here. And I'm not trying to gloss over some of the differences here, but generally I think parents wanna work closely with their, um, their teachers, their educators uh, in the best interest of their child. Um, on the other hand, are there, are there parties, to put it bluntly, who see your child as a property, I know I'm saying this crassly, and I don't mean to, but as a property of the state where they have control over how your child should think about really important issues of, um, we'll say gender or even morality. Is that is that going beyond acceptable boundaries or people losing the plot then as an educator? Well, when uh, when some people have that philosophy that uh, the parents, you know, should basically butt out and schools are in charge of, of those types of things, uh, that's very problematic. Uh, the, mm -hmm. That is not the role of school. The role of school is to, as I said before, is to educate, to help students learn, uh, to learn the academics. And uh, this idea is schools are not there to impose any particular morality or moral view on students or a particular worldview or particular religious beliefs. And they're certainly not there to make uh, to make students feel uncomfortable for their religious beliefs. And Canada is a very diverse country. We have uh, a lot of different perspectives in our public schools. And when you're promoting one and denigrating the other, uh, you are undermining public education in a big way. And that's just not a healthy thing at all. Exactly. And I, th I think you make a very good point is that essentially parents are entrusting educators with their children. So if, if the educator doesn't respect that boundary that you've outlined, that the parent is really ultimately in charge and ultimately in charge of the child's morality, then you really put in trust that working relationship of trust and you jeopardize the public education system. That is, that is absolutely how you would uh, put the public education system in serious jeopardy is to lose, is to lose that trust. And um, any, any school, any neighborhood school has to serve the neighborhood and be on good terms with the neighborhood in order for things to function properly. You lose that trust. Uh, you, you lose, I mean, 
what parent is going to want to support making sure their kids get their work done and homework done and or give the benefit of the doubt to the teacher. So when that, let's say, for example, a student comes home and says, oh, the teacher said this and insul- you know, insulted me mm-hmm. or said this thing to class. Yeah. When you have trust, parents then will say that, well, hold on a second here. There's probably another side to this. Maybe the teacher didn't put it that way or maybe there is some other context you need to consider. That's what parents are likely to say when they trust the school. But if they don't mm-hmm. trust the school, then the moment the student says anything that is critical about it, the student, the teacher, the parent will assume that, well, of course, that's exactly what's going on. See, that just proves that the school can't be trusted. And it magnifies and it builds. And then parents talk to each other and you have less and less trust. And so for the good of the teachers as well, uh, it's important to respect parents because it's far easier to teach kids uh, when their parents trust you uh, and 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 believe that you are going to uh, work with them rather than against them. So speaking of trust then, Michael, and I know like I respect your extensive experience on education policy and and experience as a teacher. Do you have a sense of um, your read then on the state or level of trust within education systems in Canada? Like I know it's hard to wrap your arm around that, but intuitively, do you think something's going on here where we have to be pretty careful that we don't, um, we, we really do need to understand each other here. We do really need to be um, ironically respectful of parental roles. Otherwise, we we li- risk losing not just the public education system, but I mean, that's going to be really, um, it's going to do a lot of damage, not only to those relationships, but to education itself, ironically. Yeah, uh, it's. I think that uh, it depends on there because obviously it depends on your your circumstances in terms of where the trust mm-hmm. is at. I would say that some schools are, are still quite healthy and there's lots of trust, and there are yeah. others where there's there's less of that. Um, I would say that the, part of the reason that the New Brunswick and Saskatchewan the parental rights debate has gotten so hot uh, is that the policy that Blaine Higgs and Scott Moe have have put in reflects the majority view of the, of the Canadian public. Every single right. public opinion survey shows that the, the majority of the public agrees that, of course, parents should be informed uh, if a child is going to have, yeah. it, if the school is going to have uh, different pronouns and a different name for the child at school. Uh, this is uh, the majority opinion. And I should add as well that the policy uh, of not informing parents unless the child consents, which some school boards do have that as a policy, particularly, for example, in Ontario, I know the Toronto District School Board that's in their policy. Um, that's relatively new. I mean, this is the, the this is this idea that parents would not be informed. That itself is 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 is, is a relatively new thing. And so, okay, so that uh, I've, you've never seen that before, Michael. It, it's it's this this idea that that parents shouldn't be informed. Uh, and to put that explicitly in policy, that is that is relatively new. I mean, certainly, I, I don't know exactly when that would go back to, but certainly not more than 10, 20 years at the absolute maximum. Mm-hmm. I'd say it'd be closer to 10 or less than that. Yeah. Uh, and so these types of changes are, uh, are, are relatively new, and there was never really any public consultation of any significant degree uh, when some of those policies were put in initially. And so... Uh, of course, now that uh, that the premiers are drawing attention to this and are sort of going back to, OK, no, the default is that parents should be informed. Well, mm-hmm. of course, then that gets a whole lot of people wondering, hey, what's going on here? What it's I didn't I wasn't even aware that this uh, the, that the things had changed in the first place. Exactly. I also find it very interesting that there is a segment um there are strong advocates for so-called transgendered rights and uh, gender ideology that are now putting in in front of the uh, people the the proposition that children have equal constitutional or legal rights as adults or parents, and that that overrides the um, right for parents to know what's going on. So I did want to, like, I I think there's some confusion there. And I think I wanted to just share a little bit of a clip that perhaps explains more about how to think through those rights. Children have rights, and they don't conflict with parental rights. In natural law theory, rights correspond to duties and obligations. Parents have a natural moral duty or obligation to care for the children that they create. Because caring for children requires making decisions on their behalf, even at times when they disagree, parental authority flows from parental obligations. Parental rights protect that authority, enabling parents to fulfill their obligations in line with the dictates of their consciences. 
those obligations have implications for the rights of children as well. As parental rights expert Melissa Michella explains, these obligations on the part of parents correlate to children's absolute right to be raised by their biological parents. Think of it this way. We all understand parents have a right to take their own newborn home from the hospital. Parents don't want just any baby. They want their baby. And parents don't have a right to just any baby, only their own. There's something distinct about the intimate, biological connection between the parents and that child. Well, guess what? That special, intimate, biological connection matters to the baby as well. The baby shouldn't go home from the hospital with just any adults. She has a right to go home with her own mom and dad. Children's rights and parental rights are two sides of the same natural law coin. Thus, true children's rights and parental rights don't contradict one another, but reinforce one another. So the next time you're talking about family and someone says, children have a right to be free of their parents' authority, remember these three things. Number one, children have rights, but they're frequently misunderstood. Number two, children have rights, including the right to life and the right to their mother and father. Number three, children have rights and they don't conflict with parental rights. Anyways, I thought that was a, a powerful overview of how to kind of see the area of children's rights and also parental rights as, as very complementary and they should be working hand in hand. And, and that's where I see the whole issue as well, where surely we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Surely we can respect people who are struggling with their gender and uh, may think differently. But at the same time, we want to respect the rights of parents to be at the forefront of the education of their children. So um, do you think that's a helpful framework to think through this issue? Well, certainly I've always agreed that uh, children's rights and parental rights, uh, they definitely don't conflict with each other. They're both very important. And uh, one of the challenges and that, that, that often comes up in, in this is that uh, there's an old saying, uh, I'm sure you've heard it many times, that hard cases make for bad law and mm. that you don't build laws and policies based on the exception. And a lot of the arguments that I'm hearing against parental rights is the argument that, well, you've got some parents that are abusive. You've got some parents okay. that wouldn't support their children. You've got, and, 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 that, and, and that's certainly been coming up a lot in the debate in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan right now is that, that line of, of argumentation. But the problem with that line of argumentation is that it's built on the exception. It's built on the rare circumstance where the parents don't have their children's best interests in, in taking that into account. But governments, when you're making laws and when you're making policies, you have you can't make it based on the exception. You may you make it based on the default, and the default right. is that you and we society can't function if we don't assume uh, that that the vast majority of parents love their kids and want to do what's best for them. Uh, just imagine a society where the default assumption is that all you know, the vast majority of parents are all abusive of their children. I mean, how would we possibly ever function or trust each other or anything? So of course. We go with the we go with the default that most parents love their children and want to do what's best for them. And so I've always believed that, OK, you make policies and assumptions based on that. So as a teacher, my default when interacting with parents is that I assume that, of course, parents want to know what's going on with their kids and they want what is best for them. Uh, you have exceptions. Of course you do. But that's where you deal with the exceptions as exactly that as exceptions. And so. Uh, as we see in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan with both their policies, they have uh, a, a, an item there in terms of how you deal with the exception, the circumstances where there might be some concerns about how parents would react. And so, OK, this is how we deal with the exception. And so uh, but when you have when you have a, a policy built on the assumption that, well, parents can't be trusted with, with this key information. So therefore, the default is that we keep the information from parents. That's got it all backwards. Uh, you don't make law based on the exception. Hard cases, as I said, make for very bad law. I think that's well said. So during this time, it's more important than ever to really dive into understanding each other's sides and really coming together uh, for the sake of education, indeed the children. So what advice would you have for parents as they try to wade through this issue and frankly get involved in their child's education? It seems to me that more than ever, it's important for parents to be involved in the education of their child. 
Well, where I'd start is actually something very similar to what I'd say to teachers when dealing with parents in that you have, first of all, go on the assumption that the vast majority of teachers also want what is best for your child. Indeed. And so don't yeah. go into the school automatically assuming that it's going to be an adversarial process. Don't assume that that teacher is going to be your enemy. And I'll even go so far as to say, don't assume that just because a teacher has a poster up that you don't agree with, that that automatically means that that teacher is indoctrinating your child. It doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean that. Uh, it is entirely possible for a teacher to strongly disagree with you and your values, and yet may not be pushing those on your child. They may just be wanting to get your kid to think. Mm -hmm. And so go in with the, with, the, with the assumption that the teacher actually does want what is, what is in the best interest of your child. So that's, and that will resolve the majority of the conflicts. If both the school and the parents go in assuming the best about each other, 99% of the time, uh, you're gonna be able to work something out that is amicable because there are very few administrators that will, or teachers that will honestly say, I don't care what parents think, I'm just doing what I want. There are some, just as like you will get some bad parents, you have some bad teachers. So that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start by saying that uh, don't assume that teachers are all out to get your children into indoctrinate your kids. That, that's not helpful if that's your default going in. Now, as far as let's say there is still uh, that, uh, you know, the, you, you, you've attempted to, uh, to resolve the issue you've, uh, and the teacher is not receptive to hearing you. Uh, well, then you work your way up. Uh, you, you work your way up. Do you go to the principal? You, try, you talk to the principal. And in the most cases, you'll be able to work something out there because most principals do want to listen to parents. If that doesn't work, then you go up uh, and you can go to the one of the superintendents in the school board. And if you don't get resolution there, you can work, work your way up to the school board level and to the school trustees. And if you don't get satisfaction there, you can go to the provincial government. Uh, and so uh, and there's and there's also the possibility of courts and all that, too, in terms of if there's a, if there's potentially legal issues. But the key thing here is you, you go in assuming uh, you know, that the school does want to work with you. Uh -huh. And then in the cases where it doesn't, there are chains of command that you work your way up. And it, it's a slow process. It's, it's not quick. It's not intended to be quick uh, if they're, because in order to fully exhaust the issue, it takes time to, uh, you know, to file a complaint and for, to have it reviewed. And so be prepared that if there's the conflict continues, that it's going to take a while. And if you mm -hmm. ultimately cannot resolve it, if you've lost trust in the school that your kid is going to, then enroll them in a different school. If you're in an urban center, you have other options. In some provinces, you have uh, potentially to enroll them in a different school in the public system. Some provinces do allow for that. Uh, and uh, for example, in a city like Edmonton, there's a lot of choice within the public system. Uh, you also, if you're in Alberta, you have charter schools that are available. You can choose that if there's space. Uh, there's independent schools where, yes, you will likely be paying some tuition, but you know, most parents are willing to make that investment if it helps their children. And you also have homeschooling as an option. So it, it, you don't have to have your child stay in a particular school if you really believe that school is not uh, helping your child. There are other options. But uh, but I would if, you're, if they're there now, try to work at the school first before you yeah. before you go the nuclear option. There are other things to do first. Right on. I think that's a good uh, good. Uh, set of actions one can take. What about um, going to provincial decision makers? Because ultimately, provincial departments or ministries of education are in charge of local school boards. What role do they have in all of this? That's quite significant. I mean, education is a provincial responsibility. So uh, going to your local MLA or MPP if you're in Ontario or MNA if you're in uh, Quebec, uh, but you're your member of the Legislative Assembly or provincial parliament, you go to them. Uh, and they're your local representative, regardless of what political party they happen to be. Their job is to is to listen to concerns from all constituents. And so uh, don't assume that just because your your local MLA is from a different political party than you that, than what you voted for, that they're not going to listen to you uh, because their job is to listen to you. Um, if you if you don't get satisfaction there or if you feel they aren't, you can always go to uh, one of the MLAs from the opposing political party. So, for example, let's say. Uh, the the government you feel is not uh, it has some bad policies and not listening will go to the opposition. They're usually quite happy to hear from people that that mm -hmm. have concerns and they they can advocate for you in the in the legislature. And mm -hmm. so, uh, but yes, going to going to your provincial representatives is a good idea. Uh, what is not useful, and this one of the lessons I actually teach grade nines is about levels of government. Don't go to a level of government that can't help you. 
So your, your local member of parliament may be sympathetic, but they really can't do anything. I mean, this is not, if education is not federal, it's provincial. Uh, the same thing, you're going to your local city councillor, again, they can't do much on this. Go to your, go to school board trustees, go to your local MLA, uh, make sure you, you're, you're going to the correct politicians if you're going to go the political route. Right on. So for, for an audience here, if we were to understand better some of the larger background as to why um, the challenge of gender ideology and, and we, we call wokeism this kind of hyper-political correctness that, that almost tends to be intolerant, where does that really come from? I know it's complicated, but is there... I know we've talked about it before, but is, it, is there a sense that a lot of this emanates from uh, those uh, faculties of education? Is that a fair comment, Michael? Faculties of education are the root of many of the problems in public education these days in, in, in both Canada and the United States. Um, I, I Obviously, as a teacher, I went to a faculty of education, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate. I've got plenty of degrees uh, from, uh, from faculties of education, uh, and I have firsthand experience. And I can say that that many of those courses are useless, and some of them are worse than useless, where they're pushing ideas that just simply don't make any sense. And uh, uh, they're, they're not all bad, uh, but a lot of them are quite bad. And so uh, if, wow. you're, if, if someone is, is wanting to become a teacher, I would say your practice teaching will be quite helpful. Don't expect your education courses to be particularly useful in most cases. And that's yeah. unfortunate, but that's a lot of teachers will say the same thing. Uh, this is kind of a running joke in, in among teacher circles is comments about just how bad our teacher training oh, really? <laughs> You don't want to hear doctors talk that way about their yeah. medical schools or dentists and all that. Boy, I didn't learn a single thing in dental school mm-hmm. that was useful. I mean, but among teachers, you will hear that a lot. If you, with, with, you know, those, uh, For example, just education professors that haven't been in a classroom in a long time, because you can be an education professor without having been a classroom teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so... Just even if the even if the ideas they're promoting aren't necessarily really bad, there's they still don't mm-hmm. have any practical experience. And uh, right. so, yeah, education faculties, there's a lot of problems there. So if we looked at a, a larger system perspective, surely one of the big things in education today in 2023 is for provincial ministers of education to reform these uh, schools of education. I mean, it sounds like between being highly woke and, and uh, infested with all kinds of ideologues, we, we have things that really do need to be reformed and we need to, to look probably at other jurisdictions to, to improve them. Is that a fair initiative that we should be looking at? Yeah, that is something that provinces should look at and uh, they'll, they'll get a lot of pushback. I mean, for example, in Ontario a few years ago, they tried to bring in like a basic math assessment that any new teacher would have to pass in order to get certified. And that actually got challenged and went to court, I believe. And Mm -hmm. uh, education faculties, like we're one of the, you know, education professors certainly were one of the groups fighting this really strongly. Of course. And, uh, but it's, it's important. We look at this question of teacher certification and what's involved in getting a certificate. And um, it's, we need to, you know, be clear about, you know, what are the skills and knowledge that all teachers should have and really focus on that. And I thought it was a common sense thing that Ontario was doing saying, well, yes, of course, if you're going to be a teacher, uh, you mm-hmm. should at least be able to pass a, a basic math test. And the fact that education faculties there fought that so hard, it's like, what, uh, um, yeah, maybe you should you know, spend a bit more time making sure that, that the people you're training actually can do these basic things. And then you wouldn't have to fight the basic math test. Indeed. Um, And speaking of solutions, Michael, I know that there's a lot that we can learn from other jurisdictions, particularly international ones. Um, I've always been intrigued by how we could, frankly, sidestep this whole debate if we just empowered parents directly and gave the money to parents and then they choose where they send their child to school. Uh, And we sidestep this whole bureaucracy. Do you think that kind of voucher system as we see in Sweden with great results is a good example for us to ultimately implement. Well, I've always been in favor of, uh, of school choice and making the, make it as easy as possible for parents to have choice. And uh, we, we have uh, a significant amount of school choice in some provinces and less in others. So Alberta would be the province with the most amount of choice, because in addition to the public schools, you have uh some public school systems, such as in Edmonton, that allow a lot of choice within the public system. You have charter schools. Alberta is the only uh, province that allows charter schools. And those are basically independent, publicly funded schools. 
And then independent schools in Alberta receive uh, partial uh, uh, education funding uh, from the province and even homeschooling uh, parents will get receive some funds if parents choose that. And so it's not a full choice where the full funding follows the parents, but a significant amount does. Uh, there's a fair amount of choice in British Columbia as well, uh, and then also in in uh, in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Quebec, uh, you have partial public funding that follows the child to independent schools. Uh, you don't have that in Ontario or the Atlantic provinces, and so there, if you're not in the public system, you're having to pay not just your regular school taxes, uh, but also you have to pay the full tuition for independent schools. And so you do have independent schools in those provinces but it's harder to access because you're paying the full tuition uh -huh. as opposed to having uh, some bit subsidized. And so uh, I think that if we, if we empower parents and give them more options, uh, that's always a good thing. It's uh -huh. uh, we should not be afraid of giving parents choice. It does, giving parents choice doesn't mean that public education is going to disappear. Uh, it just simply means that, uh, uh, that parents have, uh, have options and don't, don't have to send their kid just to the neighborhood public school if that's not what's working out in their particular case. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, at Frontier, we'd always say that that monopolies are never a good thing. So you want to empower people to make decisions that are best for them, including their children. So I'm really intrigued by that discussion. And speaking of um, looking to the future, we know that we've had a recent Manitoba election. We have a new premier, uh, Wab Canoe who's the uh, premier uh, designate, and he is going to be the 25th premier. And I think you wrote a very interesting uh, uh, commentary about trying to provide um, really nonpartisan advice uh, to the new premier on education. And I wanted to walk through some of those points. I think you made five brilliant uh, points. One, the first one was about improving the academic basics. What do you mean by that recommendation? What I mean by that is that making sure that uh, that we're actually focusing on the things that, that matter. So, for example, making sure that kids are learning uh, the basic math and, and, and memorizing their times tables and able and, and able to do the traditional algorithms for adding, subtracting, multiplying and dividing. Um, those are those things are fundamental and also learning how to read and, uh, you know, having you know, systematic phonics instruction along with a strong emphasis on content knowledge. Um, these are things that uh, that improve uh, academic instruction. And these are the things that matter in school. If kids graduate from school, they're not able to read. And if they can't uh -huh. do basic math, uh, then there's something seriously wrong. And, uh, right and I really think that I hope that's something that the new government chooses to focus on. And I thought it was also interesting that your second recommendation was to resist the call to throw more money at the system. What did you mean by that? What, what I mean by that is that it, the easy thing for governments to do is to, is to say to promise to spend more money. But when you look at it on a on a per student basis in the public system, Manitoba already is the second highest spending province in the country. Wow. Uh, and and yet Manitoba has some of the worst results on on some of those international and national standardized assessments. Mm -hmm. And so obviously simply having more money doesn't necessarily need to better results. Now, this doesn't mean that we should just drastically cut budgets because the data also shows that in countries where they spend very little on education, they also get terrible results. Hmm. But uh, when you have higher spending countries like Canada, every every province you know, spends a significant amount in education. When you're spending a lot already, ratcheting up the spending more doesn't necessarily improve things unless uh, you've got some, some positive changes that are coming with that. And so simply spending more that's not the solution. And I'm really hoping that the new government doesn't just assume uh, that increasing spending is going to is going to fix things because Manitoba already is the second highest spending province on a per student basis. Very interesting. And I was very intrigued by a third recommendation. And you cited, as I recall, um, a human rights case uh, in Ontario about phonics, of all things, and how that's important. So what, what was that about? Well, that was a report that the Human Rights Commission on Ontario released called Right to Read. And basically what they did was they conducted some in-depth research on the state of reading instruction in Ontario. And they found that this the reading instruction, which was relying on the what's called the three queuing approach, which is basically a fancy way of sort of referring to whole language, the sort of the older right. terminology, and that basically saying to students that if you don't know a word, try to guess the meaning, look at the picture, you know, look at the context, as opposed to, you know, sounding it out. 
that that method was failing students. And it was particularly failing students who were disadvantaged, students who had a learning disability, students who came from poor homes, uh, because those are the students whose parents aren't able to hire private tutors and uh, or take them to museums and all that sort of thing to help you know get their uh, get their knowledge up. And so for students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds or who have a learning disability, uh, having solid phonics instruction and solid content knowledge in schools, those are the students for whom it matters the most. And so if you're passionate about social justice, you should be really passionate about good, solid, evidence-based reading instruction. And so I know that the new government in Alberta, sorry, in Manitoba here, uh, has said that they want to really focus on improving the lives of students uh, who are disadvantaged. Well, improving reading instruction is one of the best ways you can do that. Yeah, phonics matter, Michael. Um, and then just to wrap things up, you talked about the importance of um, learning content and memorization. And also, finally, it's interesting, you talked about food and the importance of uh, food programs in schools. What do you mean by that? Well, one of the promises that the NDP made during the election campaign was to implement a universal nutrition program in schools. And uh, I've actually, in a previous Frontier column, I actually wrote favorably about even before the NDP had officially promised it, I said, I think we should have that. I think that for the amount of money that would be involved, ensuring that every student is yeah. properly fed in school uh, is important. I mean, if, you, if, you're not, if you're not fed, you don't, then you're, it's going to be pretty hard for you to learn. And so for the amount of money that's involved in that, uh, that's a worthwhile investment. Uh, however, uh, that shouldn't be the only thing that we do. Simply feeding students isn't enough. We, we do need to feed them, um, but we, we need to give them food, but we also need to feed them with knowledge, if I can, if I can put it that way. Uh, and, you know, so it would be unfortunate if, we, if the students were well-fed you know, with food, but didn't have the content-rich classrooms that they, they deserve. And so if we're going to go through the effort and spending the money of ensuring that all students mm -hmm. get proper nutrition at school, now they're able to learn. Well, let's make sure they actually do learn and they're in the exactly. right mindset to uh, to learn. So let's not waste it uh, by just having them learn about their own neighborhood and their limited backgrounds. Uh, expose them to the world around them. Uh, expose them to world history. Expose them to science and deeper scientific concepts. Uh, and, and because that's where that's where it really is at in terms of making sure students are well educated. Well, Michael Zagstra, that is wonderful advice, not only for the new Premier of Manitoba, but for every Premier across the country and beyond. And why? Because education does matter. So I want to thank you so much for our conversation today and for your leadership and insight and for joining us here today. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.